Growth, a lot of times, is not their issue. It's managing the growth once they have the business. Welcome, closers. Today, we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is season two on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moyla, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a hundred or a thousand units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Meet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today I'm talking with Heather and Michael Park with RentBridge. They are former operators that grew a successful renter's warehouse franchise in the Dallas-Fort Worth area to over 800 units. And since they have exited the business and made the transition to help the property management industry via full-stack consulting focused on growing revenue and profits. I wanted to have them on because as consultants that have actually grown a property management business emphasis on grown, they can not only talk about operations, but actually tie that to revenue. It's so easy for conversations with outsourced sales and marketing vendors to get completely disconnected from revenue. But these guys see the big picture, and we're going to ask them to share what they see working. Welcome to the show, Heather and Michael. Thank you. We appreciate it. All right. So guys, give me a little bit of background. How did you get into property management? What was your story and why did you get out? I came into the real estate industry, oh, about 18 years ago as a real estate attorney running multi-state title companies and law firms. After the 2008 crash, reinvented myself for a bit, sold that company in 2014 and wanted to be back in uh, real estate and stumble across this little company that was growing called Renters Warehouse and really liked their concept and ended up buying their franchise here in Dallas. Um, Heather came along and joined, um, gosh, that was about after we were up for about a year and jumped in and straightened my operations out a little bit too. <laughs> I transitioned from a role as a petroleum geologist in the oil and gas industry into real estate and really became the um, firefighter, as it were, for quite some time in the renter's warehouse office, just trying to get things organized and up to par and and create systems and implement those accordingly. So it was a, a big transition, but it worked out well for both of us. And it's been quite a ride since then. Although in her first week there, she actually used her geology knowledge to prove <laughs> that it was not the tenant or that it was the tenant's it fault. Was it was not, it was the, not tenant. the tenant's fault that a sewer line had backed up because of the shifting under the ground in that area. <laughs> I'd never seen it done before. Got it. So we got a geologist and a lawyer in business together. Sounds like a match made in heaven. So you get into... The business, your growing operations. If there's anything that I think about when the name Renner's Warehouse comes up, it really is a relentless focus on growth. From day one, when I met Brenton, the original founder, he had a really aggressive vision for achieving scale. So when you guys were starting off in the business, did you have any goals or aspirations from from day one? Like what was kind of guiding your priorities as operators? It was very much in the line of, you know, grow big, get scale, build a self-sustaining company that you can really enjoy running and have then have free time plus disposable income. I mean, it, the goal was to have 
hundreds of properties under management in a fairly short amount of time. As you know, in property management, you know, that creates a lot of operational issues. It's a very unique business. It is a very fast paced business that has a lot of moving parts and you find out really quickly, you know, my background of running multi-state title companies, you're, you're dealing with a lot of moving parts. It's nothing compared to how many moving parts are happening inside of property management. And you find that out really, really quickly that if you're going to grow to scale, you've got to figure out how to wrangle all those processes in a way that you're not, then you start losing customers because your processes are running you. We figured out along the way quite a few different things that work, quite a few things that don't work. And we've really narrowed a lot of that down to what we find to be the most valuable things and tools in operating a property management company that we, we typically will see very com- a lot of commonalities with our clients. But the biggest one that we see is they're trying to figure out how to get their arms around their business. Growth, a lot of times, is not their issue. It's managing the growth once they have the business. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, that always is a great question of where do you, where do you start? Most folks, when they think about growth, tend to think about the one bottleneck as being, I just need more leads. And obviously there's a lot more complexity than that. But just to take the story full circle, why did you guys get out of the business? For me, it was a, had an opportunity to work in a national role myself in, you know, with an institutional owner. And it was a really rare opportunity that I just couldn't turn down. So I ended up deciding to uh, take that opportunity at the same time Heather had actually started the consulting side of the practice at that time. I had a client approach me and, and ask if I would be willing to coach slash consult. And along the way, really found that I enjoyed it um, in a past life, even before being involved in oil and gas, I was a high school science teacher. So teaching as a whole was ingrained in who I am and what I enjoyed. And so as I entered into more of the consulting piece of it, um, I did find that that's what I'm good at. And that's what I enjoyed interacting with people and seeing them succeed based on what we work through together and what we decide together and what we ideally implement together. Got it. Michael, you mentioned working with an institutional client. I was recently at the five-star single-family rental summit out in Nashville, which is really enjoyable. It was interesting getting a little bit of the flavor of the institutional mindset, particularly for those folks that are focused on single-family. What did you take away from that time, and what were the differing priorities within that organization as contrasted versus the smaller or mid-sized investors you had worked with previously on the retail side? That is a very interesting question because I didn't go in really thinking that there would be as many differences as I saw. What you notice really quickly is that the priorities of they're typically managing a few different funds or whatever their structures. They own buckets of properties. And a lot of times you even have multiple investors and funds who have put money into this, into these buckets that they manage. And it's tens of thousands of homes and some homes in some cases. It's several thousand in others. Their focus is fund performance. And the things that they focus on sometimes are, you know, things like driving down occupancy, um, which has a bigger impact on fund performance, turn costs. You know, they're looking at a lot of it from the vantage point of the owner. What I did find that caused some issues, I think, with some of them is that that focus on fund performance, they would take their eye off the ball in some circumstances where, They're focusing on the fund performance, but they're not focusing on the operations of the property manager. The property management company will drive fund performance. If you're not focusing on your operations and your efficiency and your systems and your people inside of the property management company, 
that's the key to driving your performance. If you're not focusing on that or if you're having missteps in those areas, you're going to see it all the way down at the bottom line of the funds. But there's things that would go hand in hand. There's almost an obsession over occupancy. Well, a lot of times you you end up giving away so much to a tenant just because that's a metric that a lot of their staff is held to is the occupancy rate. It's a very important number to hold to. But what happens is I see where the a tenant that probably shouldn't be kept is kept or abuses the system. And, mm, and concessions. Yeah, yeah. Concessions that just don't need to be made. And that tends to hurt fund performance. But if you ran the property management division as it were a standalone business and it with that level of efficiency, then that would drive greater performance to the funds themselves. So the priorities, it's not that they're bad priorities. It's that the solution to drive those numbers in the right direction is to focus on efficiency within the property management division. Hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, there's a really interesting intersection and just kind of analyzing that type of thinking and seeing where it's going to go. Similarly to looking at some of the thinking that is dominant in multifamily, but it's slowly trickled into single family. It's always interesting just to kind of take another perspective and see what can or cannot be applied at a more of a mom and pop level. So let's kind of pivot to talking specifically about consulting. So I mentioned in the intro, huge hang up for me is to deal with clients that are doing lead gen that are trying to grow and that are assuming that lead gen is the way to grow. They're spending dollars for marketing performance. And in exchange for those dollars, they're maybe getting some leads, they're maybe not, they don't really know. But what they're definitely getting is some kind of a report with charts and numbers that doesn't mean a whole lot to them. There seems to be a disconnect with many vendors when it comes to actually driving accountability in their results. The fact that you guys have actually been full stack, you've held other vendors accountable, and you understand what it looks like to convert that client into revenue. Because that's part of the disconnect, right? If you work with your generic marketing agency that has no experience in property management, how could you expect them to really understand the full life cycle of the business, the client, etc.? So in the types of engagements that people bring you on for, is it more focused on efficiency, door growth, revenue growth, profit growth? What are the flavor of of situations that you typically get brought into and what are the outcomes that you're trying to drive? So what we find um, actually very interesting is that generally speaking, that conversation shifts quite quickly. It begins as a conversation of, I want to grow, I want to grow, I want to grow. Well, if you want to grow and you want to spend money doing X, Y, or Z to generate leads, but you can't tell me what your current efforts are bringing you in terms of cost per lead, cost per sale, um, or anything of the sort, and you don't know what your, your current closing ratio is, then I, as a marketing consultant or a property management consultant, can't necessarily tell you which direction to go because you don't know what's working and what's not. So our first approach is to dive in and really have the conversation about What is it that you want given your current circumstances? And once they have a better grasp on their current circumstances and what's working and what's not, then we can collaboratively make a decision about which direction to take. Um, More often than not, if not almost every time, the direction shifts a little bit toward the path of efficiency and increasing um, revenue per door, increasing the overall ability of the staff to handle the current workload. And then looking more toward, okay, if we take these steps to generate more leads and achieve a closing ratio of X and achieve a cost per lead or a cost per sale of Y, then what's ultimately going to happen on the interior 
of the entity and how are we going to handle that? And what's our staff going to do? And do we need to staff up? And what's that going to look like um, to the bottom line on a day-to-day basis? So that's generally how we see things roll. And this is why we walk through our process the way we do. You know, and our first step is this analysis stage where we dig into the company to find out because normally it's just like anything else where everyone wants to grow. Everyone wants to have thousands of doors under management, run really efficiently and, and make a lot of money. And so when they hire us, they want to go to the next step. They want to start putting some money into the business. And that's usually where the conversation starts. But as we go through that, that research stage, more often than not, there's one, there's leaking money usually somewhere. Everywhere. Um, we just had, again, we, we, fa- we just had one where we found on the first probably 20, 30 minutes of digging through that folio and digging through their QuickBooks and matching up their processes, we found about $45,000 that was missed last year. It was an operating error. And that was one of the first things that we saw. And for the record, those are operating errors that we personally made ourselves, <laughs> which is the only reason we know that's to look for how, That's them. how we learn, you know? And so, but it is, it's that step. So we, you go through and by the time we get through the end of uh, doing the analysis, because we, t- we take a look at the financials, um, we take a look at technology, marketing, everything else in between. And at the end, what we're able to do is sit with the owner and prioritize what do we need to tackle first or simultaneously. And it, it is usually something where we pick the top handful of priorities, start on those priorities, work with their staff to implement what we need to implement and move through the process in that order. I'm, you know, there are things that you can make a change in that are going to have a much bigger impact than some of the others. And that's what we want to do is we want to, we want to tackle those, those high priorities first. And a lot of times that, that involves marketing efforts as well. Same thing. And Heather spoke a little bit about revenue per door and expenses per door and profit per door. A lot of companies don't really focus on those numbers, but those are probably the most important numbers to focus on. That's, that's what's going to tell you whether or not you're running a, running a tight ship or not. And one of the things that we struggle to communicate, and, and sometimes we'll get it accomplished quicker than, than others, but one of the things we struggle to communicate a lot is that the answer isn't always to use money as duct tape. It's not necessarily a great decision to just throw money at the problem every time to generate more leads or hire another staff or something like that. Sometimes the answer isn't money. Sometimes the answer is a process or a different process or taking a step back and reworking the way something is approached or sometimes eliminating something that you're doing. Throwing money at it is easy, but doesn't always accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, well said. So truisms like that actually have meaning if you're in the numbers, if you're in the data. Here's what I think about. I think about scenarios like this. I want to grow faster. So what do I do? I throw money at the problem. I swipe the credit card. That is the easiest way to get leads. Just to demonstrate the idea that lead gen in and of itself is the easiest part of growth. You could sign up tomorrow with all property management, management property, AdWords. It's not challenging to drive leads. It's challenging to drive them at an acceptable customer acquisition cost. And it's very possible to start scaling growth and to start immediately scaling your customer acquisition cost and basically eat all of the profit that that growth could have possibly generated. So when you think about the opportunity for growing your doors like sensibly. How do you guys think about this? I'm really interested to get your feedback on this. What is an acceptable 
customer acquisition cost. How would you calculate that? And, and walk me through your logic on like landing on what, what the parameters for whether a, a given CAC number is high or low. This is a great question. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking at each other like, who gets to answer? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I'm going to, my caveat to anything I say here is everybody has their own answer that they like to this. Mm-hmm. So this is not hard and fast, but. I'll start from the perspective of that's never going to be the same answer in any given market, even within a market. Um, that's never going to be the same answer for any given business. I can say that within a major market, we've seen customer acquisition costs that range, I'm not exaggerating, from $15 to $1,500 in a given major market. So it's all about how you're going about this and how you're approaching it and from what perspective and with what resources. We love to start with looking at the sales funnel as a whole. Um, If I say to a client, describe your sales funnel and I get deer in headlights, I know we have a lot we have a lot to do. If I can get a little bit of a starting point with respect to what does your sales funnel look like? And at least they know what marketing efforts they're taking in terms of their messaging or their positioning or what avenues they're implementing. Then we've got a decent head start. So looking at the sales funnel is priority number one. So we start with, again, messaging and positioning. We start with what's your overall budget right now? Um, and what do you want to accomplish with that budget? And if we accomplish that, who's going to handle that work? What's the inside of your your staffing look like? And what are their capabilities? That's sometimes even more important. So starting with the sales funnel, looking at um, each avenue along the way, building the buckets, building the the catch-all for when a lead hits a certain stage, what happens next, and automating that as much as possible so that we don't necessarily have to man every single task along the way. And I'll let you pick up from here as far as the numbers go, Michael. But um, if we don't have a sales funnel to work from, then we, we can't really go any further than that. So that would be priority number one for us. I look at it a number of different ways. A lot of folks will say, I'm going to throw some money. I'm going to buy a ton of leads. A few things happen when, when someone does that. One, if you're spending a couple thousand dollars a month on leads, you're getting a lot of leads and you're, you have a fairly decent closing ratio. Let's say you're closing 30, 35, 40% of those. Uh, maybe you're closing 25% and you're still, you feel like you're doing pretty good. Well, let's say, wow, I don't, all I have to do is spend more money. I have the exact same closing ratio. I'm going to grow two or three times as fast. Well, what you find is you start hitting a point. It's the diminishing returns. You're not going to typically have that same closing ratio at some point. And that generally you're going to see a major drop when the owner themselves are not the one who are the salesperson in front of the person every time. The owner of the business is almost always going to have a much higher closing ratio. Well, once you grow to a certain point where you have other folks doing business development, other team members, their closing ratio, not always, but often is nowhere near the owner of the business because people just like to talk to the owner of the business. So, when you do that, when you look at budgeting and what's an acceptable, and I'm, I am getting to your question of what's an acceptable cost to acquire a client, but what you get to is you have to start thinking through, okay, I'm going to have a reduction in my closing ratio the more I spend. Plus, there's going to be different types of sources of leads have a different cost to them per lead. So you start with that cost per lead. As you're looking at where your budget goes and where your money is spent, understanding that you may have a diminishing return the more you spend. What a lot of owners don't think about is I don't need to look at that first year revenue as as me making that money back in the first year for six months or whatever that number is. You have to look at it as what's my net out of that. You have to apply your overhead to that number. So if I'm going to make $2,500 in that first year on my gross revenue level, but I'm only going to pocket after expenses $1,000 
Well, then I've got to back it my cost out of that thousand, not oh, out of the twenty five hundred. Because that, here we go. Yeah. All right, keep going, baby. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons you have a lot of companies are suffering is because they're not doing that, and they're why am I not making any money? I'm I'm burning through cash, and these are small guys, big guys, everyone all over the board, and it's because they're looking at oh, well, I just added twenty five hundred in revenue to my top line, and I, you know. You didn't. You really didn't. You didn't do your top line, but not your bottom line. So when we talk about our revenue per door and our cost per door, when you look at your revenue per door, when, I, when I'm negotiating or have negotiated with an owner, what I want to look at is, is that going to move my needle one way or the other when I look at my revenue per door and my expenses per door? Because that's going to tell me if I'm negotiating with someone who has a decent sized portfolio and I'm moving my needle, I've got to have a very compelling reason to move that needle down on my average revenue per door if I'm having to negotiate fees and things like that. You can't just look at the top line. You have to look at your expenses per door and then your profit per door. Your hard costs are not going to change regardless of the number of doors that that person's bringing in with respect to staffing, you're not going to have the economy of scale beyond a certain extent. Yeah, it may, it may dilute my phone bill but it won't dilute my staffing for very long. Long winding answer and basically got to exactly what I wanted to hear. My basic opinion on this is that, and this is something that's been clarified for me recently as we've gone through this benchmarking study, but customer lifetime profit before sales and marketing expenses, that is the number, that is the the stack of dollar bills from which you can decide how many of those you want to grab and spend to acquire a customer. So put some more color on that. When we look at the results that came out of the property management benchmarking study we did, again, this is a sample set of 50 companies, we found that the bottom 25% in terms of profitability, their customer lifetime profit before sales marketing on average, was around $750. So they're profiting $750 over the entire lifetime of the relationship, and the average for the entire study was around 49 months. I mean, making $750 in profit over 49 months, A, that's not a lot of money, you know, but that's its own separate observation. But the more relevant observation is those are tight margins in terms of being able to pull out some subset of those dollars to be able to spend on marketing. On the high end for the top 25% of companies, the 20, top 25 most profitable, their customer lifetime profit before sales marketing was around $2,700. But we know that the answer to this question of how much should I spend and my customer acquisition cost, it, it can't be emotional. It can't be how it feels to pull the money out of your wallet. And a lot of people they graduate past that, they tend to anchor it in what they think of how much they could acquire a door for, right? These multiples that are kind of floating around, a lot of people will tell you somewhere between $1,200 and $1,800 is what you're going to spend to acquire a door if you were to buy a portfolio. Well, that's not also not an apples to apples comparison because it's not like you can snap your fingers and buy a portfolio within the next two weeks. But I find both of those things to be radically inferior to customer lifetime profit before sales and marketing. That's my that's my piece on it. What do you th- what do you guys think? I agree with all of that. And you look at so <laughs> it's funny, kind of backing up to your acquisition. We do this in acquisitions too. We have been working with a client actually in the last couple of weeks, looking at buying a couple hundred units, and 
we essentially built an algorithm. And what the algorithm does is it takes all the different types of revenue produced by a property management company. We segregate it out between recurring revenue and transactional revenue, and we overweight the the recurring revenue and we underweight the transactional revenue because recurring revenue is more valuable. Before you apply anything, we actually apply an overhead percentage. It might be a 50% overhead. It might be a 60%. And, and again, it's net new. So, you know, having net new to the portfolio, ideally you're going to have a lower expense. However, in this particular portfolio, the revenue was in general pretty low. So you ended up because the revenue per door was fairly low your expense ratio was a lot higher because of how low your revenue per door was. And then when we do that, we back into how many months are you willing to get your money back based on the net profit? And we have, we have a little bit of a weighting to your gross, gross revenue, but the majority of the weighting goes to my net income. And we base that number off of the adjusted amount because I am adjusting for the value I put on recurring revenue and my value I put on transactional revenue that may or may not happen again. And a number of other factors. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's, we have about 20 factors or so that we built into the algorithm. Well, what we do is based on how quickly you want to make your money back, that gives us a number. You know, you hear these numbers, like you said, 1200 a door, <laughs> 1800 a door, 2000 a door. And those numbers vary so widely. And the reason that you could, you can have two identical property management companies, but if their fee structure is moderately different, you could have one going for 2000 one going for 1000 and both could be a good deal based on how the management agreements have been structured, based on uh, their fee structure, their ancillary revenue, everything else. And so that that's how that pricing is. So when you look at it from not an acquisition model, but you look at it from just a flat out client and customer acquisition, you know, some of that logic somewhat holds because I don't necessarily look at them too differently other than the fact that you have a higher risk of if I go buy a portfolio, I'm diluting my risk of client loss. If I go get a client and my operations are suffering and I spent $2,000 to acquire that client, there is a high likelihood that I'm going to lose money if that client leaves in six months. Whereas on an acquisition, at least I'm diluting some of my risk. You got to ask yourself the same thing. How many months do I need to hold this client in order to feel comfortable that I made my money back and not just make my money back? Uh, Because we're not in business to break even. How how quickly can I get to a profit level I'm comfortable with and how much money am I willing to spend to acquire every door? Because uh, I can go get doors under management all day long. That's easy if I have an unlimited budget. It's keeping them. That's the that's the challenge. And the faster you grow, the harder that can be at times. Yeah. And we see churn as something that once it spirals out of control, you really can't get out from under it. No matter how aggressive you're growing, if your churn is high, it'll just, it'll eat up as much money as you'll throw into it. It is worth pointing out that at the end of the day, in my opinion, top line revenue multiples are pretty much worthless to genericize about because of what you just said. Talking about an EBITDA multiple becomes a lot more useful because it takes into account how the business is actually being run. So the assumptions that you're making about waiting, et cetera, how do you think about factoring in a operator's ability to influence the revenue per door for a portfolio that they take on? I mean, obviously a lot of that stuff is baked into agreements and contracts, et cetera, but how do you factor in the new operator's ability to pull that number up via best practice XYZ as opposed to being locked into previous contracts? I can see it go different ways. I've seen it go both ways. It all is 
everything rests on the ability, skill, and operations, quite honestly, of the buyer and the performance of the seller. If the seller was suffering and they're selling because they were suffering, uh, the experience, if they come to a competent buyer, is likely going to be better. If it's uh, somebody who's a pretty good operator, but they're retiring and then they sell off to someone who is not going to give this as close of personal attention. One of the things about this business is the vast majority, the vast, vast, vast majority of properties are managed by a mom and pop size company under 200. And if that portfolio gets sold to somebody who has a thousand, then it might be more difficult for them to feel like they get the one-on-one attention because the prior only probably knew every single thing about every single property that they managed. And so when they sell, I think it is that needs to be factored in. You're going to have an increased churn rate most likely in your first year or two. So anytime you calculate, and that's actually part of the algorithm as we calculate an estimated churn rate is what's my churn rate going to be in my first and second year. And if you do a straight line churn rate, eventually you run out of the portfolio, but hopefully that levels out to a very minimal amount. And by the way, I think you're, you're very right on the churn rate when you're doing planning and budgeting and forecasting, you have to build churn rate into your calculation that that is going to happen. And hopefully you're operating well and it's not out of control, but you're right. Once you start getting over, if you start getting over 10% churn rate, something's going wrong and either something economically is happening or something's happening within your business that needs to be addressed. For our clients, we built a dashboard, which essentially tracks a lot of the metrics. And one of, one of those is a trending, a trending churn rate and a trending things like trending cost of acquisition, the trending revenue per door. And if it gets out of trend, so you can set my benchmark of when I start seeing red on my screen that I need to address it. If I set that number at 5% annual average churn rate and my property's lost month by month goes over that, we built it to alert our clients because this is kind of where a lot of the property management software, I think, falls down. It's not a business operation software. And again, I'm not in the software business, but I, we, you know, the dashboards are essentially a tool we built with some formulas on the back end to tell us, okay, my churn rate is at 7% now. Something's red on my screen. What's going on? These kind of numbers are things that are extremely important. Same thing with your cost per acquisition and your revenue per door, expenses per door. Knowing those trend lines and seeing those trend lines is really important as well. And this really should go into informing the type of conversations that our clients are having with these potential sellers. You can't necessarily look at a management agreement and know what kind of company you're getting into. Um, looking at, at the ability to, to garner the information that you need in terms of churn rate, in terms of cost of acquisition, in terms of, of the total length of, of that property, that property's tenure. Those are things that are very often difficult to get your hands on. And if you don't have any of that, you absolutely have to factor that into your risk because frankly speaking, you don't know what you're getting into at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The due diligence process is really critical to get into the numbers. I've certainly walked through that process kind of at a distance with a number of peers and seen times where even from the perspective of the the seller, where if the payout is structured over a number of years for the seller to think about doing due diligence on the buyer to make sure that there's stability there and that that long-term payout is actually going to happen, getting in early, knowing what you're looking for, looking at all of the numbers is really 
key. I do want to kind of talk about the consulting process that you guys go through. So from what I understand, from what we talked about previously, there's about kind of four stages. Walk me through what a typical client engagement looks like and how you choose to prioritize what to work on. Because as the business owner, if we could just pause time and become a consultant for ourselves, there would be a lot of things to work on, right? We, we all experience that. But there's still the question of what do you work on when, in what order, et cetera. Walk me through how you, you think about all that. Yeah. And so we designed the process uh, the way it is for a very specific reason. Because a lot of times as a business owner, one of the challenges is stepping back from the day-to-day business and really evaluating the business from you know not being so much in the weeds of that their particular day-to-day business. So sometimes there's just even value in that. But if if I were to give any advice to a business owner is set aside somehow, <laughs> I know this is very hard in property management, but set aside, you know, whether it's a handful of days or a day or a week where you, and if you have a leadership team, where your only focus is taking a bird's eye view of your business and really trying to find out where are where are my pain points and drilling into the operational pain points. But you really do want to take, and this is kind of our process in this, when we basically look at everything we look at, we want to look at, well, let's take a look at your market. You know, where are you doing business? What's your competition doing? What are, you know, what are our, you know, headwinds that we're, we're facing inside of the market in your marketplace? What technology packages are we using? What's the pain point in the technology packages? Do I have a rat's nest of a bunch of different things that don't really work well or talk to each other? And do I need to implement something fairly different? We take a look at fee structure and revenue opportunities. We look in the biggest we look at is, well, I'd say that's a real big one, <laughs> but, and then we look at operational efficiency. You know, this is a business where you're handing off the baton many, many times during the life cycle of a property. And usually it's within the baton handoff where problems arise. So we want, we want to break down and walk through that property life cycle of each one of their departments. By doing all of that analysis, those different areas, what happens is we're able to then build a, a complete picture of the business. What's good, what's bad, what needs to change. We generally don't like to start implementing at that until we've done this. There are times when, when a client will really want us to come in and look at one thing on an acute level before we hit the entire analysis. And we'll do that. But we don't really like to because one of the things in property management, everything affects everything. If I turn a dial over in my maintenance department, it might affect leasing. You know, you got to really understand the entire picture of the business before you start making recommendations. Once we make the recommendations, whether it's fee structure, operational structure, technology, then we can prioritize based on how, how high of a level of pain do I have or the opportunity. For instance, when we're talking about financial changes or maybe ancillary revenue sources or um, different vendors that we want to use. One of the things we do when we, when we make our financial recommendations is quite frankly, I sort it by the potential annual impact that we'll have. And so we can look at what is my largest annual impact. And is that something we can reasonably implement right now? And what, and there are things that you can simultaneously implement, but I want to have big, big impacts early on, which will create momentum through the rest of my implementation and my coaching process. Implementation is essentially we work with the owner to determine what they want to implement. That might be some marketing solutions. A lot of times we do find marketing, branding, things like that 
there's usually a lot of improvement, uh, especially around branding and things like, you know, digital branding, branding, brand development. Our business kind of is a bit dated. There are some really great companies out there doing some really neat things in terms of branding and marketing. But when you look at the majority of companies out there, that's some of us are still stuck in the nineties. And so we freshen that up. And then as we look at those things is those are the things that we're going to go through and we're going to pick which ones are the most important at what time to then implement. So those get implemented. And then that tends to blend with our ongoing coaching. Cause we might finish up with a project in the financial part of the business, but we're moving into an implementation phase, say in marketing, but the financial part is now in the coaching phase. We're doing some ongoing coaching and working with them and monitoring metrics and those types of things. In, in a nutshell, that's kind of the, the overview of the, of the process. That definitely covers all of the highlights. One of the, the key things that we like to look at is, and I, we've come back to this several times, just because it's going to have a great effect or a, a noticeable effect on the bottom line doesn't necessarily mean that the property manager has the ability to implement that specific line item. What we'll tend to do is make sure that we've gone far enough down the path of analyzing the operational infrastructure and the staffing and and individual unique abilities to make sure that if we make certain decisions and, and choose to implement certain pieces of the analysis, that there's frankly the manpower there to handle it and, and the buy-in. A lot of the time, what we um, see is that it takes a little bit of encouragement from the business owner or sometimes from us just to make sure that everybody understands that this is not new. This has happened before. Someone else has been you know, quite successful in this, this arena and, and just encouraging them to grasp the concept and as well as uh, become the, the cheerleader that we need them to be. Change is really hard and it's not always welcomed. So getting the buy-in, making sure that everybody's on the same page and assessing the ability to be successful in a certain area is a key component of what we do before we, we run down the path of decision-making and, and full-blown implementation. So yeah. um, that, that tends to apply to all categories, be it analysis, implementation, or coaching, ongoing coaching as well. Just making sure that every decision is, is well thought out and planned before we take any steps. Got it. So it makes sense to me. To be honest, sounds expensive. And it sounds like it's the sort of thing that would create a massive amount of value if you can stomach actually paying to have a third party come in and audit what you're doing. And frankly, in a perfect world, that's what every business owner would do is to actually spend the time to pour a fine tooth comb over all these different areas. But I'm going to guess in your business, similar to in our business on the profit coach side of things, there are a couple of categories that keep coming up as being the most frequent offenders that are the highest impact. For us, what we tend to see typically falls into the category of being related to either churn, revenue per door, or labor efficiency. Those are kind of the three big buckets that when we find significant problems, they tend to exist in those areas. Similar for you guys, different buckets. I mean, when you find something to solve or something to attack, what buckets does it tend to fall into? Mine would definitely be the marketing bucket, making sure that people can answer the questions that we need to answer before um, any decisions are made. So understanding what we've referenced earlier, your cost of acquisition as a whole, and really just hemorrhaging money in a certain area. So being able to rein that in, make some sound, well-informed decisions and make those changes quickly is probably the, the biggest pain point that I run into with my piece of the analysis along the way. 
Mine would probably fall within a few different categories that I really see. One is when you really look at the financial piece of, of a property management business, it is kind of what you said. A lot of property managers just are not operating efficiently. The industry has changed quite a bit. And so our pricing model is tightened in some markets. But if you haven't implemented certain procedures or technology that make you more efficient, then you're, like you said, you're, you're going to end up falling behind in your revenue and your profit per door. So I see in terms of the fee structure and the opportunity for additional revenue is one of the biggest areas of impact that we have been able to see and to have whenever we work with our clients. And usually, and you mentioned it, it can be expensive. The nice thing about that is we can show if you were to apply these changes and look at it from the standard of, well, what would happen if my entire portfolio looked like this? It makes our fee look like nothing. It's And so that's a really big one. I, my other one is it would be technology. Technology and property management is it's, it's come a long way in the last several years. It really has. But it we have such a long way to go. We've been a little bit behind the curve, I think, as an industry, but we've got a few leaders. I think y'all are one of the big leaders in the industry. You've got a few others out there who are really changing the way that we do business. And as a business owner who usually has your head down in the business on a day-to-day basis, a lot of times you don't have time to try new a new technology or new software or, you know, you, you just don't have time. So you don't do it, but there are a lot of solutions that work better than others. Sometimes it's even the the software or the technology you're using. You're not maybe necessarily using it to the full extent. There's a argument again, technology in our industry, you know, do I go with my best in class and every single component or am I going to overweight to be able to, you know, for things that can integrate into my systems. And that's an ongoing battle. I mean, it really is because sometimes if the best in class has a bell or whistle that is really worth me having to log out of one system and into the other, that it might make sense. But in a lot of cases, that is that bell or whistle you're getting worth that extra time. And what we find is, is a lot of companies, it just sometimes I find they chase the bell or whistle without considering the implications of how do I integrate that into my workflow and my process and my cohesiveness. And then the third thing is companies that have reached a, a certain size is communication between departments and tracking whether it's random tasks or procedural tasks. That's one of the biggest things we see is, and one of the biggest things we get asked to look at is how can we know what's happening in a certain process between departments. So those are really my big three things that come up over and over again. And I would just add a little bit to the technology piece. As a whole, what we find um, supplies the largest amount of culture shift, and, and like I referenced earlier, um, buy-in, is going to be that, that establishing a brand identity and freshening up the overall image and the ability to speak to who you are, what you are, and how you are as a company. And Frankly speaking, the the benefits to something like Lead Simple are pervasive in the sense that they meet the best in class, as as Michael mentioned, but they also meet the ability to integrate into all of these different systems, including your branding and your ability to automate your marketing workflows and and maintain that level of professionalism that you want your brand to speak to with the the automated follow-ups and the SMS messaging and and everything else that's that's included in an all-encompassing uh, CRM like Lead Simple. So that's what we've seen um, has been, uh, among others, a huge benefit to our clients that are really trying to revamp 
and, and really trying to identify themselves and set themselves apart from their competition is little things like this that people don't generally think of in connecting to your brand identity and, and your overall professionalism. Sure. Yeah. Right action, right time. That's a lot of what I hear you guys saying. You've lived it. You've been there. Right action, right times where so many people get tripped up, right? It's like the equivalent of having a, a bad back and a broken leg, but you're just obsessed on perfecting your jump shot. The jump shot matters, but being like ambulatory is probably a good precursor to actually being successful at the game overall. So I do want to transition now to the rapid fire section of the interview. I just want to get some guttural answers from you guys on a a host of issues. And the first is this, who do you guys learn from? Where does inspiration come from for you? You know, we actually learn probably from every single client as much as when, when we go in and we break down a, a company, inevitably we find the common problems. But a lot of times we find some really innovative solutions. And I kind of tell most clients, if I see something really neat, I'm stealing it. Our clients have along the way come up with some really great solutions that I will admittedly say I'm integrating this into our consulting practice. It's a great solution. The cliche answer is NARPM, but in reality, it's the relationships that you get out of NARPM and the groups that you end up joining after meeting this person in NARPM or engaging in other types of um, mostly, I would say, primarily digital conversations and, and you know Facebook groups and things of that sort. But to speak to what uh, Michael had mentioned from a client, that's how we learned about Lead Simple. Um, we had heard about it time and time again through you know many visits to NARPM or NARPM related meetings or um, other uh, members of NARPM, but had never really been able to dive in or had the opportunity to really take a look. And it was one of our clients that was utilizing it quite successfully that gave us the the opportunity to, you know, peel back the the curtain and and take a deeper look and see how we can implement this in several other areas. Well, what about any other thought leaders, though? Uh, any industry folks, maybe outside the industry or inside the industry? Any other thought leaders that you follow closely? Uh, you know, I like the guys who are innovative, who look at, um, and, and this is kind of where when when we look at our industry and see vendors in particular. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you care if I mention a few names, but I think companies like Filter Easy are just changing the landscape and creating enormous value. Rently, to me, in my mind, is a huge, huge game changer. They've They've done some very innovative things, everything from reducing the cost of showing properties to now they're integrating a, the Kila system and that allows access and never having to go change a lockbox again. And there's just extreme, you know, just an extreme amount of value in some of these thought leaders who are bringing these solutions to the table. And, you know, they're young companies, all of them, not all of them, but most of them are fairly young companies. They look at the way we've done business for decades and, they start asking them questions. How can we do this better? And how can we, how can we tweak it and mold it? And we like that because that's kind of the questions we like to ask. How can we do it better? Because when we go in and see a client, we bring a a lot of our background. We bring the experience of being in front of different other clients and their solutions and bringing ours to the table. And we've, that's, that's great and all, but we don't always know everything. And the industry is changing so fast. These it's the thought leaders that are are changing the business. So I think there's a lot out there. Yeah, I mean, I think there there's some really smart things happening out there. And the common thread I think we see is is looking for the opportunity to do more with less. And everyone that that Michael's just mentioned is is absolutely catering to that mentality and providing that ability. Um, so I think our clients definitely 
relate to that and, and can benefit from it. All right. So let's stick with the education theme books. Are there, is there one book for either of you that you would say had significant impact in your career? And Heather, as a teacher, surely, please don't, don't come up short on this one. Surely you got something for me. <laughs> Um, well, this is kind of a terrible answer, but um, you know something that Runner's Warehouse introduced us to was um, the EOS system. Ah, I find Gina that to Wickman. be yeah. <laughs> pieces of that were just absolutely. I don't know. We we couldn't have done what we did or what we're currently doing without it. I may or may not have gone back and read that uh, multiple <laughs> times. But another book that's you know kind of outside of the industry. And I would definitely recommend it. And I'm probably going to completely fail to remember who the author is. But um, the book is If. And it's it's all about just taking that chance and just speaking to your strengths and knowing that it, it really doesn't matter if you're determined and if you're looking forward to what you plan to accomplish, that it can happen. It, it doesn't matter what you're equipped with or what you're lacking. Um, it can just happen. It's it's your big if. I haven't heard of the latter one. We'll definitely have to go check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it is a great book. And you took like my two answers that I had. I mean, <laughs> Good call. Going first. you read two books last year. <laughs> I mean, you can tell that we're married because one of us will end up, you know, reading the book and be like, you really need to read this and then read it. So. And, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, great. Now I'm like left with comic books. Like, <laughs> <So that's, laughs> dummies, dummies Guide to Property Management. <laughs> yeah. you, read, um, you always talk about The Millionaire Messenger and how much you enjoyed that one. Yeah, I think The Millionaire Messenger is a really good one. And that's, again, sharing your story and building, no matter what business you're in, is sharing your story and then building your business around that. An interesting book that I read has nothing to do with business, nothing to do with anything. It's The Worst Hard Time. And I've always referenced this as one of my business books. And the reason is it's about the Dust Bowl up in the in the panhandle in the in Oklahoma and Kansas. I read it around the time of the Great Recession in 2008, 2009 time period. I don't, a lot of people don't realize this, but the the Dust Bowl was caused by a financial bubble. And it had to do with, I believe it was, I think it was a, a blockade of wheat from Russia. Was that right? And then, so essentially it drove wheat prices up. Everyone in the pan, you know, those panhandle, those northern parts of Texas, Oklahoma and Kansas and those areas started just planting wheat, planting wheat, planting wheat. And they're just making a killing. Well, embargo ends, wheat prices fall. And the only thing that the farmers can do is plant more wheat because they're making less on it. Well, tears up the ground. You end up with dust bowl. There's a long drawn out thing. And it was a lesson that I learned that bubbles in any financial sector are not new. So prepare for them and understand that no matter how good things look in any industry, you know, we believe in property management. We, we tend to think, yeah, we're fairly recession resistant. Well, sometimes our recession is the opposite of everyone else's. It's when, when everyone's selling their properties when we have challenges or Maybe, you know, there's other things that can happen, but there's no such thing as an industry that can't have issues. So bubbles aren't new. We're humans. It's human nature to act in somewhat of a herd mentality. So always prepare by, again, running a lean machine in good times. Don't add and start layering on expenses that aren't needed. Be very thoughtful about how much you're spending to get new clients, all that kind of stuff. It all matters. Property management is either riches by pennies or death by pennies. One of the two. And in good times and in bad. So anyway, that's kind of my, I've always taken that lesson and taken it as a very cautious, a tale of caution, the Dust Bowl. And keep in mind, you're speaking with a man who survived back to back, pretty (laughs) devastating recessions in in said industries. So he's, uh, he's definitely practicing what he preaches. And people wonder why I cut my own hair. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, but do you have to tell them that, or can they figure it out? I know. That's the real question. Uh, unfortunately, they can tell. <laughs> yeah, these days it's more like they can tell he doesn't cut his hair. Oh boy! Oh boy! I, I love it. I did it. take a second to um, to look up that book, Jordan. It was "If" by Mark Batterson. It's trading your if only regrets for God's what if possibilities. It was a pretty phenomenal read. Awesome. We'll have to check it out. So for me, what I take away from the non-business books getting listed in the business section is basically that the mental models, the thinking, the perception, that is reality. And you guys know this, right? We talked about this in the notes before the show. You come up with some advice or a strategy and you hand it to 10 different people and there are 10 different results because your belief, your ability to implement is largely a mindset issue. So wherever that wisdom or that advice or that perspective comes from that allows you to actually take the steps that you need to take in in your business, more power to you. I do want to talk about kind of in closing here, the Renbridge Academy that you guys just pushed out. Obviously, engaging with you guys for a full console would be a fantastic route to go. And I want to get your make sure that we have your contact info. Folks want to get in touch. But for folks that are not ready, or let's say folks that are earlier in the life cycle, just kind of getting started up, you guys just released a fantastic educational resource. Walk me through what is included in that and why you guys decided to kind of give away all the secrets. Redbridge Academy has grown out of, again, the ability to share, you know, what we've learned in, in property management. And not only that, as we learn new things and as we cover new topics to basically have a resource for startups, for existing clients or even exist, existing property managers of all different levels in their business so that they can improve on their business without necessarily, you know, for those that have maybe difficulty either engaging us and quite frankly, we get booked up. And so we want to make sure that we have the ability to not necessarily not be able to service our clients or those that want to learn from our business. That's where Rent Bridge Academy was born out of. And our first course is live May 1st. We're pre-selling right now. We're starting with a startup course, which is a 10 lesson course, basically everything you need to know to run and grow a property management business. What that resource at RentBridge Academy is, is going to be everything from we start here, we're going to start and grow a business. And then as you advance through the growth of your business, there's we'll be releasing other courses and different topics. Some will be on marketing, some will be on advanced workflows and that kind of thing. And those will be more in-depth versions of what you're already going to to see in the, the initial property management course release. And specifically, this this course is very much what our clients receive throughout the the course of a year, throughout the span of their year and working with us. It's simply compacted into a digestible format that new clients and, and clients that are not currently working with us can choose to tackle on their own at their own pace and their own convenience and really allows us the opportunity to not have to say no to anybody. Um, we've met some extraordinarily talented people along the way, be it realtors that are just wanting to get into the business or property managers that are getting into the industry from another industry altogether that simply can't afford to work with us on a, on a one-on-one basis, or we just don't have the time for at that particular moment due to our current client load. So what this allows us to do is to just never have to say no. The beauty of it is you'll be able to reference it time and time again. If you have questions and need to come back, if you need to brush up on a certain topic, it's always going to be there for you in, a, in an online self-guided 
format. Yeah, and as and as we receive feedback of what is what are the pressing issues people want to learn about or have a course on, we can then focus on the next course being what there is a higher demand for. Yeah, we're really excited about this launch. And you admit you had asked how to to find that, and you can just go to rentbridgeacademy.com. Um, there's also a link from our main site, rentbridgegroup.com. Either way, you could end up end up there. So Perfect. So it is full stack. It is from operators, and it is a great way to kind of test the waters if you're new in the business. If you just want to basically have a baseline to not have to relearn a bunch of stuff that other folks have already figured out from folks that have firsthand experience, this could be a great route. If you're thinking about upping your game, whether that be on the operations side of things, sales, marketing, and you'd like some help, you can check these guys out at rentbridgegroup.com. I've had a great time talking with you guys. I'm excited to see where things head in the future. I think there's a ton of potential in this industry, and uh, it's folks like you guys that are kind of leading the way and providing that extra shot in the arm. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Let's stay in touch. Thanks, Jordan. We appreciate you having us. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.